If you entrust me with the presidency, I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us to come together. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. My fellow Americans, tonight I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. Hello everyone, welcome back on RCB for the fifth episode of the Battle for Washington. There are about two weeks to go before Election Day. The two candidates went head-to-head -head this week in two distinct town halls, and we are therefore looking for the final debate scheduled on October the 22nd, which is said to be the last physical confrontation between Biden and Trump before the final vote. So everything is speeded up now, as Joe Biden's lead in polls at the national level by 10 points in a recent New York Times today, and as the hearing of future justice Amy Coney Barrett just ended. Also, in this episode, the second part and final part of the interview of former ambassador Jeff Rockins. On your marks and get set for episode 5 of the Battle for Washington. Twenty twenty American elections. This is the battle for Washington. Ines, let's start with the news. So the two candidates to the White House held televised town halls on two distinct broadcasting channels. Mr. Biden appeared on ABC for about ninety minutes, while Mr. Trump spoke on NBC for an hour. Both events began at eight p.m. Eastern time. This means that voters, and especially uncommitted voters, couldn't watch both candidates at the same time. And of course, this was not the debate we were expecting. But how did we get there and why NBC scheduled a town hall on the same time slot as Biden's one? After President Trump refused to appear remotely, Mr. Biden booked a town hall on ABC for Thursday night instead. Then Mr. Trump rustled up his own town hall on NBC. The channel's executives argued that they were locked into the time slot because they had to offer the president parity with Mr. Biden, who held a town hall with the network 10 days ago, also at 8 p.m. Despite everything, the event took place several thousand kilometers ago from one another. Biden in Pennsylvania, a key state in the race that goes to Biden for the moment with an average of five, six points according to different polls. The dwelling town hall events came during Mr. Trump's first week back on the campaign trail after his three nights hospitalization in early October and his recovery in the next week. The president has been determined to return to campaigning, as usual despite the apparent severity of the health issues he confronted. And very aware that time is running short and perhaps eager to dispel any perception among voters that he might be physically frail. Here are the takeaways of Thursday night town hall which are much more consistent in terms of program than last presidential debate. So on the central issue of the election, the coronavirus pandemic, the two candidates appear to inhibit not just different television sets, but different universes. So Mr. Biden has made the full embrace of the strict public health guidelines the centerpiece of his candidacy, while Mr. Trump has continued to defy even the recommendations of his own government on matters as basic as the use of masks, a pattern that persisted in the opposing events on Thursday. The words of a president matter, Mr. Biden said. And talking about words that matter, Mr. Trump repeatedly declined to disavow QAnon, a pro-Trump internet community that has been described by law enforcement as a potential domestic terrorism threat. The president 
professed to have no knowledge of the group and as a result could not disavow it, but then demonstrated specific knowledge of one of its core conspiracy theories involving pedophilia that is entirely false. Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. He may be Why right. not just say it's crazy and not true? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. So there was a difference in style as well as we could have expected. Hopefully this time the exchange was much more serene. Mr. Biden was looking for connection with the voters by making constant references to his plans to confront the major challenges facing the nation, which include the coronavirus, school and business reopenings. He concluded many of his lengthy responses by expressing hope that he had answered the various questions and he stayed after the event to chat with attendees. On the contrary, Mr. Trump often flashed impatience with Mrs. Guthrie's persistent questioning as they spirited in an outdoor setting at the Miami Art Museum. The president sounded especially exasperated when she asked him to condemn white supremacy. A couple of days later, on a different show, oh, you, you, you denounced white supremacy. No, you My question to you is, you've done this to why me does and everybody, it seem like... I denounced white supremacy, okay? You did I've two days later. I've denounced white supremacy for years, but you always do it. You always start off with a well, question. You didn't ask Joe Biden whether or not he denounces Antifa. And when she asked him several times for specific information about his recent bout with the coronavirus, the president largely resorted to generalities and declined to say if he had taken a virus test on the day of his first debate with Mr. Biden. So the Democratic candidate has recently dodged question on the issue of court packing, which is the attempt to appoint additional judges at the Supreme Court. He insisted that his focus is instead on potential judicial threats to the Affordable Care Act and at times responding brusquely when pressed on the issue. But on Thursday, under questioning from George Stephanopoulos of ABC, he appeared to say that he would clarify his position on expanding the Supreme Court before Election Day. But don't voters have a right to know where you they stand? They do have a right to know where I stand, and I'll have a right to know where I stand before they vote. So you'll come out with a clear position before Election Day? Yes, depending on how they handle this. So what has to be noted is that Donald Trump said he would commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election, a promise he declined to make in the first debate, though he quickly added the qualification that he would insist on an honest election and raised unfounded theories about voter fraud. When Mrs. Guthrie pointed out that the FBI director, Christopher A. Ray, has said that there was no sign of such widespread voter misconduct, the president shot back, I quote, then he's not doing a very good job. All in all, this event won't have a great impact on the final vote, as many previous presidential debate. But Biden had less to lose from this relatively muted evening, since he's consistently ahead of Trump in national and swing state polls, while millions of Americans are already casting their ballots through early and mail-in balloting. Very briefly, two other important news of the week. So, additions of Justice Amy Coney Barrett ended on Thursday, and the Senate Judiciary Committee lined up a confirmation vote for October 22nd. But Democrats stepped into the breach, as Senator Amy Klobuchar did. Today, is you cannot divorce this nominee from the moment we're in, in time. And that we do not have some secret, clever, procedural way to stop this sham. Let's be honest. Because this is not... Donald Trump's country. This is your country, America's country. And this should not be Donald Trump's judge. 
It should be your judge. Urging them to reverse course, Democrats warned the Republicans were setting a dangerous new president in an ever-escalating judicial war that could irrevocably erode the legitimacy of the Senate and of the courts. This process is a caricature of illegitimacy, said Senator Patrick G. Leahy, Democrat of Vermont and a former chairman of the committee. The fact that we had a nominee before Justice Ginsburg was even buried in order to jump this nomination through before this election would forever mark this process as the cause political power grab that it is. And secondly, the Washington Post revealed that the White House was warned in 2019 that President Donald Trump's personal attorney Rudy Giuliani was being used to feed Russian misinformation to the president. The paper said the warnings were based on multiple sources, including intercept communication that showed Giuliani was interacting with people tied to Russian intelligence during a December 2019 trip to Ukraine, where he was gathering information uh, that he saw exposed corrupt acts by former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Andrew. And Donald Trump did nothing to prevent this. He let Giuliani collect information on Biden, even from the Russian intelligence services. Now, here is the second and final part of the interview we began last week. Here is Jeffrey Hawkins, a former ambassador in the Central African Republic, giving his insight of Trump's foreign policy since 2016. So in his first press conference back, um, I'm going to read you a quote uh, from, from Trump's first digital press conference since his arrival back at the White House. He said, uh, quote, it wasn't your fault that this happened. It was China's fault. China is going to pay a very big price for what they've done to this country. What are your thoughts on this rather bold statement? How legitimately do you think Trump would pursue this line of questioning with China? Well, I mean, first of all, the whole, the whole idea is, is ridiculous. Uh, you know, a disease is not a, a, a national fault. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it happened to originate in China this time. And I, I, I have seen no credible evidence to suggest that it was actually invented in some lab or something like that. I think it happened the way they, the, the, the public health officials think it happened. There's probably some transmission between animals and humans, and that's how it happened. That could have happened in Africa. That could have happened, as it has with other diseases, Ebola, for example. It could have happened in the United States, you know, Legionnaire's disease, whatever. Um, uh, ascribing a national origin to a disease and then um, casting blame on a country um, for for that disease uh, is 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 has no foundation whatsoever in public health or and, and serves no valuable purpose in fighting with these the purpose that it serves for the president of course is a political one trying to f deflect blame for for uh what's happened to the american people onto onto foreigners uh, that trump's base already mistrusts deeply anyway but um uh you know we we're if we're going to beat this disease we need to work with the chinese and it does, that doesn't mean we have to like their you know their authoritarian regime or that you know we have to support their uh, their uh, their their actions in hong kong but it does mean that when faced with a common worldwide health threat uh, we're we're better off all kind of pulling together on this thing and, and pooling information and making sure that we have enough equipment to deal with with the problem and ultimately working on a vaccine or a cure um, and that's not that interest is not served by by this kind of jingoistic Trumpian nationalism. Uh, I have a question that links both uh, elections and international relations, because this week in The New York Times, Fiona Hill, that was the, the former senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council, wrote that the biggest risk to this election is not Russia. It's us. So how can you react over this and also assess a little bit more about the 
the um, the relation between Trump and Putin uh, during those four years? Well, I mean, uh, you know, the intelligence community, uh, and, and as you probably know, in the United States, there there are the intelligence community is a big community. There's 17 U.S. government agencies that make up the intelligence community, and um, often with fairly divergent views on on on, on different issues. Um, um, but the intelligence community is unanimous that the Russians intervened in our elections in 2016, and the intelligence community is unanimous that uh, they're trying to do that again in 2020. So, so there's a real danger there. Um, and I think what, what Fiona Hill meant by her quote is something that I definitely agree with. It's, it's not that, you know, if we were united and focused and doing the things we need to do and having a good debate about, you know, our policies and um, what we wanted the future of America to be, That sort of Russian meddling probably, I'm not saying it would be irrelevant, but it would not be very important. The reason why it's it's an issue is because we are so divided, so polarized, so convinced of so many conspiracies and everything else. It's just the terrain is so rich for, for Russian bots to be, you know, propagating uh, propaganda right now. That they don't have to work very hard, and and the, the beauty for for Putin, you know, in 2016 and today is it doesn't really matter who wins or loses. He doesn't have to he doesn't have to swing the election one way or the other. All he has to do is 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 promote and and amplify the divisions in our own society. And the more we're divided, the more we're the more we're uh, completely self obsessed as we are. The more we have our Joint Chiefs of Staff in quarantine because the White House can't, you know, uh, do do take basic steps to to control uh, the an outbreak of disease. The less anybody's focused on what's happening in, in you know, against uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia or happening in Syria or Iran or where, wherever else in the world, there's all this trouble, um, and that's in Putin's interest. So, uh, you know, he doesn't have to work very hard. He doesn't have to make a huge investment. Um, To, to reap a lot of benefits. Now, the relationship between Donald Trump and, and Putin, to my mind, is, has been a complete mystery, but it's certainly that that closeness to Russia uh, is not traditional Republican orthodoxy. So it's not coming from his party. I don't think there's a big constituency in the Republican party or amongst conservatives generally for, you know, cozying up to Russia. That's a Trump thing. Um, and frankly, I've never understood it. And Uh, you know, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, but uh, let's just say that I, I don't understand why, for example, in Helsinki, uh, Donald Trump is more interested in taking uh, Vladimir Putin's word on, on involvement in American elections than he is in taking his own uh, intelligence community's word. Okay, so um, kind of speaking more broadly, uh, over Trump's four years, he's really radically redefined the nature of modern diplomacy. I think previously you had kind of a consensus a status quo on, on U.S.-led cooperation, international cooperation, but he seems to be gearing the United States and trying to, you know, promote the idea of this great power competition, this big power competition of the future uh, with his conflicts with China, the trade wars, and so on. So how drastic of a change do you think this has been, and can it be reversed in the, in the, in the immediate future? This is something I've been thinking a lot about. And, and, and the, the, the key difference, right, um, is really since, I mean, there's a thread of this that runs through American foreign policy since the founding of the Republic, but especially since Wilson, uh, you know, at, at the end of World War I. American 
politics has been driven by uh, an idealism. Um, American politics, uh, international politics has been has been driven by values, um, and for you know a, a significant portion of the post-war period, of course, you know the major value was was post-communism, um, but that 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 wasn't like great power competition. That was uh, uh, that was an ideal, you know, and this idea of American exceptionalism and who we are, and promoting democracy and free markets and blah, 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 all these things that we said we believed in. Um, so, you know, we did that with greater or lesser convincingness, and sometimes we would just pursue naked self-interest. But all along, decision makers were motivated by the sense of American leadership, by the sense that not only were we leaders, but we were leaders not because of our might, only, but because of our right. Um, and uh, Trump has abandoned that completely. Or, or uh, every once in a while he pays lip service to it, but, but he has abandoned that for a completely transactional foreign policy um, that appears to my mind to be based almost entirely on what uh, politi domestic political gains can be made for Donald Trump personally in pursuing that policy. Um, and so it leads to something that's very erratic, you know, and it leads from these wild swings on, you know, some, a place like North Korea where there's been consensus, you know, Republicans, Bush, Clinton, you name it. I mean, the approach was more or less the same with the North Koreans and the idea, you know, the idée fixe was like, we got to get these guys, um, we got to make sure they don't have nuclear weapons because they're dangerous. And we got a lot of allies in the region. We got a lot of interest in the region. We don't want this um, authoritarian nuclear armed state in, in, in Asia. Uh, and Trump is like, well, okay, uh, let me threaten him first. No, that doesn't work. Let me write him love letters, blah, blah, blah. None of which has done anything or, or demonstrably made any change, um, but uh, has weakened our position you know, uh, with, with a country like South Korea, so, so, or North Korea, sorry. Um, and so it's just, what can I do? Who can I be offensive to? And, and undermining an entire international system built around these values. And, and I, I think notably uh, about the transatlantic alliance, which I'm really concerned about, um, you know, that was built on ideals, democracies, Western democracies, standing together, defending each other militarily if need be, but also sharing values. And, and, and NATO is explicitly founded on those values. Um, and, and him just calling all of that into question. And, and, uh, and, and I would really, I really deeply fear that we'll see in a second Trump administration a withdrawal from NATO. Um, that's all over now. Um, and you can go back to the values-based thing, but I think a lot of crockery has been broken. I think, I think a lot of damage has been done, and, and it'll take a Biden administration a long time to get over that. And, and it didn't start with Trump. You know, I, I also think that the Iraq war did a lot to um, sort of push some of our allies away, notably France, uh, and, 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 and suggest to our allies that they needed to start looking around for other solutions, you know, for their own security, for their own, uh, you know, some other sort of international architecture. And, and, and I mean, without going on and on, you know, I mean, you look at an issue like Iran, where, where we should be in lockstep with our European partners. Uh, and now we're at loggerheads uh, because Trump is pursuing this er erratic, you know, transactional policy that, that doesn't take into account the values of our partners. And, and I think that's really dangerous.
So uh, speaking on that same issue of both the Middle East and that idea of American leadership in uh, international diplomacy, uh, Trump and his special advisor to the Middle East, Jared Kushner's son-in-law, uh, recently arbitrated uh, d- official diplomatic recognition between Bahrain, the UAE, and the state of Israel. Um, do you think that this is kind of part of a greater plan for the Middle East, or is this more just kind of uh, something token that Kushner and Trump can uh, kind of push as their big accomplishments? Well, I, I, you know, I can't, I, I'm not going to be in a position of saying that everything Trump has ever touched is, is bad. And, and I, I think that it's a positive step, you know, that, that, that in part with American assistance, those two countries formally recognized Israel. What I worry about is um, we seem to have completely abandoned the cause of Middle East peace, you know, and peace between Palestinians and, and Israelis in favor of a policy that is pro Netanyahu. I'm, I'm not even saying pro Israel, just pro Netanyahu, um, which is unsustainable in my mind. And, and, and I, I understand and support, you know, our historic support for Israel, but I think our historic support for Israel needs to include a recognition that peace with Palestinians is in Israel's interest and therefore in the United States' interest. And Trump, again, I think for domestic political reasons, said, no, forget all that. I'm just going to support Israel. I'm going to move our embassy to Jerusalem. I'm basically going to, you know, I'm going to end our assistance to uh, Palestinian refugees. Um, And I'm going to cast my lot in with a new sort of uh, alliance, you know, between Israel and some Gulf states, authoritarian Gulf states, against the Iranians um, for complicated reasons uh, at the expense of Middle East peace and, and um, at the expense of some of our values as, as far as some of these regimes in the Middle East are concerned. You know, I mean, we've got the war in Yemen and all, there's all sorts of elements to this. Um, and and uh, in a conflict where the United States has traditionally attempted to play a media, mediating role, sometime with real success, um, we've abandoned that, you know, we're not neutral anymore. Um, and I don't think that's good policy for the United States. And, and so even if I'm happy that Bahrain has, has got, you know, diplomatic relations with Israel, um, I think that came at a really high policy cost. And we'll see in, in, you know, in the coming years how that all works out for us. I see. And um, kind of going to your more personal experience, um, as someone who was a dipl- diplomat in Africa, um, how would you say that this this redefinition of international diplomacy and, and now COVID, how would you say that affects that process of state development and stabilization that is, you know, was trying to form and take place with some of the younger states there? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I mean, I think about our, our, our policy in Africa. In, in, in many respects, um, you know, as an American diplomat working in places like Nigeria or Angola or Ivory Coast or whatever, um, I could be pretty proud of what we're doing, you know, uh, uh, and, and speak, I, th- I think, with, with real genuine appreciation for, for a lot of American policy in, in, in Africa. And, and I think, you know, the Bush administration wasn't a huge fan personally, um, but the Bush administration spent billions of dollars on health programs in Africa, so they were particularly... George Bush was particularly interested in in fighting HIV AIDS and fighting malaria in Africa and and dropped a lot of cash on it. And along with, uh, you know, international multilateral international actors had significant impact on that. Really, in some ways, his greatest achievement, right? What's that? In some ways, Bush's greatest achievement was the the eradication Uh, of HIV in Africa. I I would certainly in Africa it was. (laughs) Um, 
And, uh, you know, I mean, we had programs on supporting democracy. And then in, in the Obama years, you know, the, there was a great youth program that, that, that we had that was really reaching out to African youth and recognizing that those were going to be the future of, of a resurgent Africa. Um, and really shiny kids, you know, I mean, they were, they were awesome because I, I interacted with a number of them myself. Um, and, you know, working on infrastructural things like Power Africa and all the rest. And, and Trump has, has dropped all that. And, and uh, in 2018, then National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, gave a speech where he described the Trump Africa strategy. And it was basically a Trump uh, anti-China strategy in Africa. It didn't really have anything to do with Africa itself other than threatening them that if, if they didn't do what we said, we wouldn't support them anymore. Um, and that's not the kind of engagement I think that, that uh, partners in, in, in a place like Africa need or deserve from us. And again, that will be part of the work uh, that, that uh, has to be done. I did an interview recently, you know, comparing sort of what we know about Trump's policy and what we can say about Biden's policy if he becomes president in Africa. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, Biden's got, will have lots of problems to deal with, you know, Russia, COVID, whatever. Africa is not going to be his number one policy priority, but he has a lot of people that's working with his campaign who will presumably be in his administration, you know, notably Susan Rice, who may well be Secretary of State, um, who, who know Africa well. And they will care about that continent um, and they will uh, do the kind of garden tending that we did during the Obama administration or, or, or the Bush administration, for that matter, uh, and, and go back to a, a much more engaged uh, policy in, in a continent like Africa and other places, too. And I really look forward to that happening because this kind of treating, you know, uh, African countries as shithole countries, as the president mm. you know, so, so eloquently did. Uh, that doesn't win you a lot of friends. Sure. Um, two last questions, more focused on uh, France and Europe. So addressing our French listeners, what should they be keeping in mind during all this? What candidate would you say is better for France and for the European Union? Well, I, I really regret on, on one level having to say this, but, you know, I mean, putting my French hat on for a minute, one thing that I think is absolutely crucial is, is France and the EU need to be thinking very clearly uh, and, and um, very presciently about uh, security threats for Europe and, and how Europe organizes itself around that. Um, because, I mean, if Trump is reelected, you can forget the United States. Uh, and like I say, I'm, I'm worried that we might withdraw from NATO. Even if he's not, it, again, these alliances take time to rebuild. I would say that, you know, maybe Trump has, has uh, one of his legacies will be leaving some part of the American population with a lot of questions about the value of these things. I think Europe needs to be thinking more about how it organizes itself for, for its security and what its threats are. Uh, and I personally believe, you know, among the primary ones is Russia. You know, we have this very aggressive state on, on the on the fringes of Europe, you know, one that is involved in a number of conflicts in which France and other countries in Europe have a, have a direct stake, one that has sought by armed means to, to change the borders of, you know, of, of countries in the Euro, in, in Europe. Um, 
that for me and and is interfering in democratic process and all the rest that's that's very dangerous obviously managing the relationship with china trade relation primarily but also security and what the, what they're doing other places is huge dealing with uh you know instability and terrorism in in africa um which is someplace incidentally that the united states and, and france have cooperated very closely on without there being a lot of attention called to that in either country um you know those are going to be things that that Europe is going to need to think. How are we going to do that? You know, if the if if the American alliance is weaker than it has been before, or if it ends, you know, how do we deal with that? And I think it's actually in, in America's interest because, generally speaking, we share the same values. For there to be a strong European uh, sort of defense security mechanism there um, that we can work with, rather than avoid, um, because I only think that states like Russia benefit from that void and, and not not the united states right thank you so much for your time mr hawkins this was fantastic um, yeah thanks for coming it was really a pleasure to interview and for a podcast it's a real honor to have you on, on our show thanks pleasure being here thank you thank you all for following this episode and see you next week and as a reminder lcb is available on every streaming platform this has been the battle for washington season two episode five see ya